Welcome to the Hurricane Center podcast, produced by the Storm Science Network and part of the National Tropical Weather Conference. This podcast is made possible by USAA, the South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, and Plylock's Hurricane Clips. Fresh back from chasing in the in, in Hurricane Sally uh, and, and looking bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, uh, our speaker this morning I first met in the 1980s when I was a forecaster at Fort Worth and uh, had the pleasure of doing a tornado chase with Tim up into the Texas Panhandle uh, the Memorial Day weekend of 1987. Uh, we saw seven tornadoes that day, some of them illuminated by lightning. Uh, that was quite an experience and I really enjoyed that. Uh, Tim has a unique combination of education degrees in meteorology and civil engineering, uh, where he went to Northern Illinois as an undergraduate and Texas Tech uh, as a graduate student. And he uh, took that merger of talents and, and became one of the experts in assessing wind damage in his long distinguished career with Hague Engineering. He's now down to part-time uh, engineering and full-time storm chasing. So with that, Tim, I'm gonna let you tell us all about your experiences with Hurricane Laura and anything else you wanna talk about. All right, Bill, welcome gang. Welcome to those online. Yeah, well, I just got back, so I'm gonna be a little bit on the uh, nebulous side as it was quite the drive from Gulf Shores to home yesterday. Uh, of course, I did a survey in the morning and I didn't get out of there till about oh, two or three in the afternoon. So you can just imagine how long and painful that drive was. Uh, I went by myself down there and met, of course, many chasers, a fellow chasers down there. It's just sort of a social gathering to see so many of us who are interested in the strong winds. We just cannot get enough of strong winds. So it's been uh, hurricane number two this year. And <clears throat> Sally was actually more impressive to me from a standpoint that I wasn't expecting very much. It was forecast to be a minimal hurricane. And I was really debating for a long time on whether I should go down there. But I'm very glad I did because as you know, it intensified uh, a little bit but before it came on shore. And it was nice to see that. It, it was uh, wind gusts uh, about 100 miles an hour and did a real number on trees and power lines. So most of south parts of the coast area are without power and will be without power for a very long time. And the surge came up, oh, it was moderate enough to flood parts of Gulf Shores and Orange Beach so that really getting around was very difficult to do. Uh, and then, of course, parts of 59 were flooded down to Foley from uh, Loxley, and power lines were down. So travel was still treacherous yesterday. Tell us a little bit about those uh, those poles that you were talking about, the power line poles. Uh, those were kind of interesting story. You know, every time I do something like this, I learn. And that's what really makes it for me. So I saw all these light poles that are down, and I'm currently writing a light pole standard at the EF scale. And I... So, well, this is very odd. I see a lot of them snapped at the ground and they were painted aluminum. 
I thought initially they were aluminum until I got a closer look and they were not aluminum at all. They were a composite resin fiberglass uh, hole and a lot of them were snapped at the base. And this is to me uh, a cheaper alternative than an aluminum pole. Aluminum is far better, I think, and did quite well in uh, parts of Gulf Shores, Orange Beach and other areas. So that was a learning experience for me because I had not really documented composite poles before. And this was a great example. So here you go. Another good case study for me to have great information acquired about how did these composite poles perform during what I would call a lower end hurricane. And it did quite poorly, those poles, compared to their counterparts, which are the aluminum or even wood poles that did better. Compare what you saw in, in Sally with what you saw a couple of weeks earlier with Laura uh, on the other side of Louisiana, basically. Now, there in Laura, Lake Charles area, they had the design of hurricane force winds in mind when it came to like traffic lights. Something that I documented again that I hadn't seen before was the fact that they had hundreds of traffic light poles that would actually swivel or pivot and vein in the wind. So this saved the poles. What a wonderful idea and what a wonderful way to be hurricane resistant. And, and now all they have to do is swing those poles back, tighten down a little bit and get the power back on and they're back in business. So they saved lots of money by having these poles that actually swing in vain with the wind. It's a wonderful idea. I wish I could see more of that in hurricane prone zones, thinking about what the wind will do. Cause you know, as we all say, it's not a question of, of if a hurricane's ever going to hit your coastal community, but, but when will it? And they had their design built in. It was wonderful to see there in Lake Charles. Unfortunately, Lake Charles has, of course, lots of trees and power lines down, and it'll be weeks before they get power restored. When you're looking for a place to ride out a storm, you know, you've ridden out Laura and Sandy in the last two or three weeks, and you've been through many more in the past what do you look for? Where do you want to be? How close to the to the ocean's edge do you want to be? And what do you do for protection? Well, hurricane chasing is like tornado chasing. It involves a strategy. You have to plan. And what I do is I look at Google aerial imagery and I find where all the parking garages are, especially if it's a stronger hurricane like Laura. So I had picked out five parking garages, and I got to the coast, got to Lake Charles area, early enough to scout out those parking garages. Well, the first one I went to was like the Isla Capri Casino. And that parking garage was fine. It was open. However, it was right across from a gravel storage facility. They had three conical-shaped mm-hmm. piles of different size stones. Oh, that would be perfect in a hurricane, wouldn't it? <laughs> to be blasted by gravel, wind-driven gravel from these uh, these three piles. So that, I said, was out. Then I went downtown, and there was this bank building right downtown, and it is a glass facade uh, building with a beautiful parking garage right next door. And I said, hmm, do I want to ride out this hurricane right next to 
all this glass? And I said, no. So then I went to another option, which was the St. Patrick's Hospital there, which had a five-story parking garage. Hey, it's a hospital. What better place to be, right? They're operating. There you have a generator. And they were kind enough to allow me to uh, ride it out on the top floor. Um, and I was above all the other houses and trees. I had phenomenal view downtown, Lake Charles, to the, to the north. It was really an ideal location to ride it out. The only, I guess, less than ideal thing was that it's in the middle of a residential neighborhood with a lot of trees and power lines, and it was difficult to get out of there the next morning. But I'll tell you, it was still a wonderful place to be. So, yeah, I pick out parking garages, typically do my homework. In, uh, in Sally, there are several hotels and condominiums along the beach of Gulf Shores, and that's a great place to ride it out. The only question I had there was the storm surge. You know, the storm surge comes in and floods, and cars don't do well in storm surge. So, uh, and then I heard that they were going to close and shut down the island and not let anybody out. I mean, after a certain time, uh, they, they would not let anybody leave that island. So I managed to hear about that and get out of there in, into Foley, which is north of the International Causeway Bridge. And, and that's where I was. But the, uh, the hurricane was not as strong as Laura in terms of wind, uh, and the surge was not as great as like past hurricanes that I've been in, like Ivan. Ivan was a phenomenal hurricane, and I rode that out in Warrington, which is actually just south of the, uh, west of the city at the Naval Air Station uh, there, and that was a phenomenal hurricane for me. But again, all these hurricanes are at night. Now, I don't know why this is happening, but, uh, you know, I would like to get one during the day. <laughs> yeah, the, the only hurricane that I can remember that was a day event for me was Hurricane Allen. Uh, the, it came through. Uh, uh, what, and, what, and the things you see down there, there's been a, a lot of uh, 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 speakers at meetings I've been to that have uh, shown how we've made uh, improvements on our uh, uh, structures or building codes and things like that. Uh, 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 do you concur with that? And, and a secondary part of that same question is where do, where do you think we're uh, falling short and could be shore up without spending a fortune? A great surprise for me in uh, aftermath of Hurricane Laura was the, the performance of some manufactured homes. Now, everybody thinks, oh, my gosh, manufactured homes, they don't usually do too well in the wind. But there were some manufactured home parks that I toured after the the hurricane that did quite well. They were anchored down with the frame ties as well as over the top ties and outside of maybe some vinyl siding damage and some shingle damage, those homes remained intact. And that was a great surprise in some of the larger manufactured home parks to me. And it shows that heck, if you can make a manufactured home survive these category three and four hurricanes, then, then you should be able to make your own house survive. It's, it's not out of the question. Down in the Gulf Shores from Sally and Orange Beach, of course, a lot of those houses were built with hurricane resistance in mind and did quite well. Metal roofs that were attached properly uh, did fine. People did use some shutters and impact-resistant windows, but balconies had roof overhangs that were tied down. So, yeah. I think we're learning here, Bill, after how many years? 
And it's, it's a matter of getting everybody to do, but you know, mother nature kind of weeds out the weak. So eventually we hope that over the next hundred or so years, if people can at least build away from the, from the coast, that they can build properly and survive these things. It's possible to survive. That's good. Uh, uh, the impact windows, uh, have they been performing like you'd expect them to in the, in the, in the storms you've surveyed? Yes, impact-resistant windows have been performing quite well. Of course, they can break, uh, but they won't lose their integrity. So to be able to keep their integrity, and there's standards that we test for that. We have various kinds of cannons that we can shoot boards like two by four at, and you can break the window, sure, but it remains intact. That's the beauty of it. And that's uh, why I like impact resistant glass. It's not really a total substitute for shutters. I like a good steel shutter. That to me is the ultimate because who wants broken windows and have to pick up all that stuff afterwards. So shutters are a great idea, way to go. Yeah, they're expensive, the impact windows. I would, that's what I tell people, I would still shutter if I had them. I don't have them on this house. Uh, they weren't required, no one was offering them, but I would have had them and still would have put shutters on them to protect the cost. Yeah, because as you know, flying debris is one of the big culprits of causing a lot of damage. And if you break a window and wing can get in, now you have internal pressures to deal with. And that can actually double or more the upward loads on a roof. So you want to prevent the wind from getting in. That is a key. And it doesn't matter if it's a window or a door or garage door or a roll-up door. You want to make sure that those things don't fail and you do not allow wind to enter. Yeah, it, it reminds me of a question I also had on there. The, the After Andrew, there was a, a, a concerted effort to improve the integrity of garage doors. Uh, I, I saw examples of both successes and failures being shown by people uh, down in Port Aransas area after uh, a Harvey. Uh, uh, anything you can add to what uh, what to look for in a garage door? Well, garage doors have wind ratings. Did you know that? There are certain ratings for garage doors. Now, of course, I'm up in the away from the coast, so my door is a pretty standard door. But if you live near the coast, definitely get a wind-rated garage door. FEMA also has some great information. At, you can get a hold of fema.gov slash library. Great information there on how to fortify your garage door and prevent the wind from getting in. It involves either putting some girts, which are horizontal members, to strengthen that door, uh, to all the way to putting a frame wall behind that door in advance or preparing for the hurricane. Because you do not want to lose your garage door in a hurricane. And they are the one of the most susceptible to damage in a hurricane. Very good. Tim, you got anything? Uh, yeah, define define near the coast. When you say if you live near the coast, um, you're fortifying things and your surveys over time. How far inland is, does the severe damage continue and how, how far inland do we need to, to fortify? That's a great question. You know, in the case of like Sally, where it's moving at two or three miles an hour, the damage is confined within about 50 miles of the coast there. But, you know, I remember back in my youngin days, a uh, Hurricane Hugo uh, that 
was actually moving at a pretty good clip. And there was pretty good damage all the way from the Charleston area on up to Charlotte, North Carolina. So, and that's wind damage I'm talking about. So it, it shows you that depending on the forward speed of the hurricane, it could be anywhere from a few miles to a few hundred miles from the coast. Just because you think you live in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, doesn't mean that you 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 can't get some pretty good winds there from from a remnant hurricane. We talked about you know Hurricane Hannah, and I live about seventy miles inland from the Gulf Coast, and I worked through the, through the storm, of course. But afterwards, my wife said, "I wish you would have put the plywood on the windows before you went to work, even though we're seventy miles inland, and it was not a not a major storm. Uh, just because of the stuff blowing around in the yard, she would have felt more comfortable." Uh, having some kind of window coverings, even 70 miles inland. So uh, I think that's, that's a good point. And it could be a lot more than 70. Absolutely, yeah. And what were some of the wind gusts there in Hannah, in your area? We, we had gusts to about 60 this far inland. Uh, it was sustained at about 40 for a prolonged period of time because it was moving so slowly. Um, and that was, the, that was the trick, was the slow movement of it, and it, it fell apart. But the persistence of the wind was the issue, much like what they've seen in, in the in the – you know, the Southeast because of, uh, of Sally. Yeah. So there's sort of this kind of uh, Goldilocks kind of scenario where, well, the people at the coast, they know a hurricane's coming. They're in a preparation mode. They get their things in order. But then if you're 20, 30, 40 miles away from the coast, you know, you kind of get this complacency and go, oh, you know, it's, it's going to only hit the coast and that sort of thing. And, and just simple things, you know, stuff that you have in your yard, uh, everything from garbage cans to uh, uh, gravel around the house uh, that you have or play things, play toys around there, they can fly and they can break a window. And so it, it's just a matter of look around, see what may do some damage, you know. Another thing, are, I saw, see this a lot, are trees, especially pine trees. <laughs> Pine trees act as a windbreak. They do help slow the wind, but they also break in the wind. So a pine tree coming down can do extreme damage to a house. I've seen where they just literally cut a house in half. And I, I saw that in Laura where there were a couple of those, and, and including manufactured homes, where they just slice the home in half. So although trees are great to have on your property, it's just if they're close to the house, they can really come in and, and damage your house severely. A couple of good questions coming in online now. Casper's asking, are some of these impact window tests occurring at the wall of wind testing facility that um, Florida International? Good question. I'm not sure if they have tested recently some of the, uh, the impact resistant windows. Uh, I know there are several facilities out there that do that, and I've actually been to a couple of them out on the East Coast. There was one in, in Miami, and there's one in, in uh, South Carolina that they do test with, with wind, various components of buildings. But certainly check on that. Check the information. Uh, if you're going to order an impact-resistant window, there are different kinds out there and different ratings. Yeah, the same, same goes for the, there's all kinds of shutters you can buy. And, uh, and I only looked at the ones that, that uh, could provide a certificate that they had passed uh, 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 certain standards in Florida or, or the Texas Tech standards. And they, they can get those certifications. 
Yeah, I'm not familiar too much with the films that go over windows and how impact resistant those are. Uh, I'm more have seen the actual window itself impact resistant. So I'd be interested to know if anybody has any heard of anything about the well, films that are applied to windows and whether or not they have anything to do with strength. Uh, the, the, the general impression is uh, uh, that they don't, they, they can't pass the standards. They do some, they, they do some at the lower end, but if you're wanting to protect from a, 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 I forgot what the wind speed was, but it was way too low to satisfy my, uh, my needs. Cause they, that would be an inexpensive way if it was successful. Yeah, Has Haskell was just asking a question about that, about the the three M eight three M eight mil security film, but but research is still out on that, I guess, huh? <laughs> yeah, I would have to do some research on that. It doesn't strike me as something that would be as good as a normal impact resistant window. Uh, you know, there's anything you do it will help, except for masking tape. Uh, do not put X's on your windows. <laughs> Because uh, that, to me, does absolutely nothing except make the manufacturers of the masking tape uh, wealthy. But it's like, <laughs> do not put masking tape X's on your windows. It does not enhance the impact resistance of those windows. And Leaves a sticky residue. Yeah, you spend the next three weeks cleaning your windows if, after the storm if it didn't hit. Yeah. Uh, Andy wants to know, uh, Tim, did you investigate the remnants of Olga, the damage to the Tennessee River Valley from last year? It was a hybrid system that caused nearly 250-mile damage path. I did not get to Tennessee for that. Uh, you know, I, I investigate tornadoes. I was in Chattanooga for a tornado uh, outbreak that happened a couple of years ago, but I had not been there for Olga. Uh, so I'm interested in all kinds of, of storms, of course, that that actually do damage. Uh, uh, I've been so busy though with other things, I haven't even gotten to the derecho in Iowa. And our, our folks up there in our offices up there are super busy right now with uh, work from that derecho. It's quite the event. I got I I got an interesting uh, question. I don't know the answer for the the stated design uh, wind load for the WSR 88D radar is 135 mile an hour. Uh, the radar uh, uh, dome disintegrated, thus ending the life of the current Lake Charles radar right as the eyewall came over there. How, what kind of winds would do that if it's rated uh, at 135 miles an hour and yet it, it blew away? Well, we always deal with failure in terms of probabilities. Uh -huh. So if something is rated for 135, it should obviously survive 135. <clears throat> the fact that it's gone doesn't necessarily mean the winds were 135, because if you think about a probabilistic distribution where the, the mean is actually 135, you could get a failure below the mean, and there maybe there was a problem with the attachment, uh, and it only takes one weak link in something like that to get catastrophic failure. So I'd be kind of interested to know some of the details about that. But keep in mind that when something is rated for 135, there's a thing called a safety factor that's out here. And it should be able to survive not only 135, but maybe even 145 or, or a little higher than that. Uh, it's just things happen. I mean, 
I don't know how old the dome was. I don't know the attachments uh, on how it was anchored. So uh, those are all keys and you can fail something lower than its rating if you have some inherent kinds of issues. Yeah, there was a, that's a good point. There was a, a, a an ADAD, a same, same radar uh, over in Taiwan that a typhoon took off and they determined the failure there was the, uh, the bolts weren't strong enough to hold the dome on. Okay. They didn't know what the wind speed was anyway, but that's where it didn't collapse the dome itself, but the bolts were sheared off. What are some of the more unusual things you found in your storm surveys, whether it's Laura, Sally, or, or any prior surveys? These just go, oh, didn't expect to see that. Well, doing surveys is an educational opportunity for me. I still learn, even after all these years and many dozens of hurricanes that I've been through and, and surveyed, I'm still learning, and I enjoy that. So when I see something that has failed, you know, I try to figure it out. That's what I, I do. But vast majority of the time, it's because something wasn't attached properly and the wind just takes advantage of it. I mean, the wind's going to seek out a weak link and exploit that. But every once in a while, you know, there's certain things that bog my mind. Like for Laura, the loss of all those windows in that bank one tower is, is certainly needs to be looked at because they had some loss in Rita, as I recall, that here we have, catastrophic failures. Whenever there's catastrophic failures, this is a chance to learn, folks. This is how we try to make a difference, try to learn about these catastrophic failures so that they will not happen again. Uh, I heard about a bridge segment that failed uh, from this Sally in Pensacola. Well, in I-10 had bridge problems in Ivan too. And it's like, this is a chance to learn. Now in Mississippi, they did learn. And after uh, Katrina went through, they decided to build a lot of those uh, main bridges. And I'm talking about you know, like the one from Biloxi to Ocean Springs, really higher and uh, much, much stronger. And that's the way to do it. If you want to beat a hurricane, uh, you need to learn about how to resist both the wind and the water. And that's, that's the things that, I think are important here is whenever we come across these catastrophic failures, yeah, they're puzzling until we look at it closely and usually we can figure it out. It's really a detective job that you, you're doing there, searching for clues and then coming up with a probable cause. Exactly. I mean, it, the damage is actually the evidence left behind after mother nature's uh, doing. So this helps us, in learning about it. I mean, a lot of people see, oh, the, this was destroyed. Well, that's maybe true, but there are things in a pile of debris. For example, if a masonry wall falls, I'm looking for things like a bond beam, uh, which is that type of beam across the top of a wall, see how it was connected, if it had any rebar in it, what kind of rebar it may have had. So those kinds of things I'm looking at. If a brick wall fails and it's just a pile of brick, I'm looking for brick ties, see if they had any kind of corrosion maybe on the ties. So this is evidence for us. And we can go in before the cleanup, and that's why I want to get in as quick as possible before cleanup, is to see this evidence and try to document. 
is this something what we've seen before or is this something totally new and we need to really maybe publish this get somebody's attention about it yeah i, I assume you've uh, over the years you've worked pretty closely with the insurance industry uh, a lot of people down here are screaming about their very high windstorm rates that they're being robbed on that i i tend to disagree but you may have some uh uh, more uh, more knowledge of how that's come about to whether it's legit or not. Well, we all pay for the damage and destruction, and you know, insurance companies, in the short term, yeah, they, they will pay you for and reimburse you for your damage, but they have to make money, so they're going to charge a premium for it. And the more difficult it is for them to make money, the higher your premium is going to get. So, I know that some of my friends who live in Florida pay twice or three times what I do in terms of insurance rates. Now we live in the same kind of house and our houses are valued about the same. So why are they paying two or three times more than I do? Well, it's because of the risk. Their risk of getting damage is much greater than my risk. I'm not going to get hit by a hurricane. I mean, tornadoes, but tornadoes are much lower risk than a hurricane along the coast. And Florida, as you know, sticks out like a sore thumb there. And so its chances of getting hit with a hurricane are pretty high from year to year. And a lot of people like to live near the coast. It's amazing to see the amount of building. I, I mean, I've, I've been around doing this for about 45 years. And the amount of growth I've seen from Gulf Shores, Orange Beach, down to uh, places like uh, the Jupiter and Marco Island and all those, I'm just amazed to me at how the building and development has happened over 45 years. I mean, Marco Island was just a, a swamp back then and now it's full of condos and it's like, it's just sitting out there waiting to get hit. Yeah, that, uh, that whole Southwest Florida, my first experience going down there was in the early 1970s and they were well separated uh, post-World War II small communities dotting the coastline all the way down south of uh, Fort Myers. Now it's just a constant, it's total development now all the way down to Marco and all of that is in a surge zone. Yeah, in fact, during Irma, I decided not to go out on Marco with uh, several of my friends down there, but I went to where in Naples. In Naples, I decided to ride it out there, uh, right at the elbow of where 75 curves there. And that's where I wrote or met Irma out there, and that was a daytime. But Irma, of course, was hurt quite badly uh, with the coast interaction with Cuba. So it's a good thing that it did that, but it certainly did some damage to, uh, especially some of the roofs that we saw and pool enclosures and that. But it could have been far worse had it not interacted with Cuba. Mm -hmm. And one of our speakers pointed out, I apologize, I don't remember who it was, that, that these are not natural disasters at all. They've been here for forever. And us putting houses and buildings in front of them is what the man-made aspect of this is what makes it, you know, more of almost a man-made disaster more than a natural disaster in many of these cases. Yeah, so going back to why do you pay more so much in insurance, it's because of that risk, because of all the people that want to be near the coast and experience the beauty of the beach that have to pay for that living in paradise. Yeah, that's what I tell them. They're not happy when I tell them that answer, but that's, you're exactly right. 
And a question from Andy, he wants to know what the typical wind speed rating of large transmission line towers is. Towers come in, these are the truss towers. We're talking about the tapered towers that uh, distribute power. They have various ratings. Most of them are in the 110 to 130 range, but they're gust sensitive, of course, especially, of course, they have the cables, the conductors uh, attached to them. And they need to have those with dampers on them so that they do not whip around in the wind because that puts a tremendous amount of, of load on the tower itself. So I'm going to say 110, 130. And again, it's a probabilistic distribution. There are some towers that will fail earlier than that because of maybe some debris that gets caught in the lines or just maybe age. Some rust gets a hold of. These are made of, of galvanized steel typically. So maybe age is a factor of it. So there's a number of things probabilistically that can occur to bring down towers below that. But for the most part, 110 to 130. Casper is asking, what's the worst hurricane damage assessment you've seen in your 45 years of work? Well, I'm going to have to vote for Andrew on that. Uh, Andrew was the worst hurricane destruction I have seen. And it's a combination of factors. So it's a combination of that the winds were strong in Andrew, but also the codes were rather weak in, in that time period. I don't know if we'll ever see that level of destruction again. I hope not. But manufactured home parks were just shredded. And there were subdivisions that were put up pretty quickly down there that failed miserably, had a lot of code issues and poor building practices. And that's what added to the destruction. So there's a combination factor here. The one-two punch for Andrew was the wind and the poor building that I saw. And also, Andrew did have a surge. A lot of people don't realize that it had a, at least a 18, 20-foot surge. We saw large boats actually moved on shore quite the distance because of its, its surge. So I think I would have to vote for Andrew. In, current, in terms of my inspections and my surveying. And I've done this now. Uh, Bill mentioned Hurricane Allen in 1980. That was my first hurricane, both experiencing it. I was in Corpus Christi and also in surveying, doing the damage survey, went to Port Mansfield afterwards down to Brownsville. And so ever since then, I had the hurricane bug and I knew that I needed a write out as many of these things as I possibly can and have done so. And they're all different. I mean, each one of these, like Sally, very slow moving uh, hurricane kind of North eye wall, uh, Laura being, you know, a wonderful circular eye wall uh, and, you know, relatively fast moving. So these hurricanes, they're not all the same by any means, different sizes. I mean, look at the size of, of, of Allen. Hurricane Allen took up the whole gulf in terms of its cirrus shield. It was amazing, gigantic size. And, and Camille was, uh, even though I didn't chase it, it was a little too young then, uh, <laughs> was a tiny but but very impa impactful storm. I've seen some of the satellite images, and at least it was the same thing, a little tiny, uh, you know, but very powerful nonetheless. So hurricanes come in various sizes and shapes. It's been a joy having this thing called a hurricane on planet Earth that I can uh, uh, chase them. And, <clears throat> yeah, it's interesting because 
that they also for the for those of us in the trying to get the public to act and warn on that's the, one of the difficult challenges is depending on what hurricane someone previously experienced they're going to base their response for the next one on what happened to them then and it's not going to be the same and it's sometimes hard to get through to people that, that this is uh, going to be a war storm for example i have to think that one of the more challenging jobs in the profession is be a forecaster for the National Hurricane Center to try to figure out where these storms are going to go, let alone what intensity they might be when they get there. So for like Irma, when a, a storm is like, when's it going to turn to the right? Uh, is it going to go on the east side of Florida, west side of Florida, or right through the middle of Florida? The glancing uh, tracks, you know, when it's coming in parallel to the shore, that's, that's got to drive those foot guys crazy to try to figure out when and where. At least with Laura, it was pretty easy to forecast uh, where it was going to hit. With Sally, not so much. You know, Sally was having this interaction with bigger forces than the hurricane itself, and it was being pulled to the right all the time. You know, initially it was thought it was going to come in around the Pearl River, and then, oh, Biloxi Gulfport, oh, and then maybe Mobile, oh, and Gulf Shore. So it kept on being pulled to the east. And that makes a huge difference when you're trying to prepare for a storm and all these cities trying to take action. Uh, it's, it's really kind of uh, frustrating at a time to try to forecast these things. Oh, yeah. It, uh, the, those ones that run up the East Coast like, uh, like Isaias did earlier this year and Irene back in 2011, it, it uh, lights up every emergency management office to Maine. Uh, and you have, and every one of them have a different concern. And, 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 uh, uh, the unique thing on there, they're different. So again, the Gulf, you have a lot of, of cross-track error to concern with. Also, usually the ones going up the East Coast, it's a speed. You lose track. Of, if, if you lose track of the speed, the models don't speed it up quick enough as it's heading into the westerlies. People start losing time right away on making their plans to evacuate and whatnot. And then there's the intensity forecast. Try to in forecast intensity. Even just a matter of, of just a day or two in advance. I mean, Sally, I was really kind of reluctant to go because maybe it was about a 40% chance that it would be cat one. And then all of a sudden it, it intensifies right near the coast to be cat two. So it's like, wow, that that's, I never saw that coming. <laughs> yeah, both Laura and Sally uh, give me great ammunition as to why decision makers, uh, that have to pull a plug 48 hours in advance should add a category to the forecast to, because of uncertainty. We're just not that good. Plus or minus a category is within the skill level of forecasting at that time frame. Yeah, and 48 hours, as you know, is not a whole lot of time to prepare on these things, especially if you're dealing with a fairly sizable community and getting things ready and getting people out of there, evacuation zones and the like. To think about adding another category of just again probability there uh, it's possible this thing could be actually stronger that 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 would be very challenging to say the least yeah well it's not just the meteorological science but the social science that follows you've got to figure out where it's going to go what it's going to do and then figure out how to convey that message uh, and that's that's got to be the as much of a challenge as anything i would think yeah i mean you have to stage all of these Aftermath, uh, the, the power crews, where are they going to go? Uh, the people with the cell uh, service, uh, where are they going to go? 
So they have to go somewhere, and you don't want to be in harm's way. Uh, I've heard where, uh, for Charlie, for example, I had several friends of mine that evacuated the coast and went to Orlando and thought, oh, I'm going to go to Orlando, nothing's going to happen there. And guess what happened? Charlie comes in, takes a right hook, and ends up going through Orlando. Yeah, Charlie was a 15-mile-wide tornado. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the damage swath, and I surveyed Charlie. The damage swath from Charlie was very narrow, very confined, but it was like a knife that cut through from the southwest to the northeast in, in central Florida. That was another one that gave forecasters fit because it was going in. Uh, when it was still on Cuba, the, the best estimate of the forecast track was very parallel to the coast, eventually grazing the, the coastline at Tampa. And everybody got fixated on that point on the map. And they talk about a sharp, unexpected turn. Well, it was just a small turn, uh, a little more north northeast instead of north or northeast to north northeast. And it, and it made a very big difference somewhere on the coast that went inland. Exactly. My target was Tampa, and Tampa got nothing. So it was like those chasers who went down to Port Charlotte, they, they got some uh, something memorable down there. Inquiring minds want to know what your travel plans are for the Texas coast for the next seven days. <laughs> hey, I'm like you guys. I'm watching the Gulf, and I'm going to see what's going to happen there. I always like it when it's closer to home, the storm chase. Uh, it gets a bit uh, difficult. Irma was probably my most difficult chase because the, the power was out for almost all of the western uh, part of Florida, and I could not get fuel all the way from, I would say, Tallahassee on down to Naples. Fortunately, I had 55 gallons of extra fuel with me. I don't normally carry that much, but I anticipated that would happen, and I used every drop trying to get out of there. Wow. Well, if it comes this way, I invite you to come by the house and take pictures of my uh, uh, shutters and everything. And then, and then in the aftermath, I'll have evidence that an engineer looked at them. There you go. <laughs> Consider it done. <laughs> Let's try to steer the hurricane towards your house, right? It won't happen because I left all but my front porch and back porch. All the other shutters are still on. Therefore, we won't get a storm. If I put them all away, we'd get one. I wonder if your neighbors get concerned, Bill, when you start putting shutters up on your windows. I know uh, mine do. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't cause a panic. They just wonder, is it really going to come here? And I explain to them, I put them on a day earlier than most do, uh, mainly because I don't put them on very often. I just want to make sure they work. And if I've got a problem, that'll give me a day to try to work around it. Okay. Good idea. Good plan. Good plan. So during, uh, I don't know what hurricane it was when I first bought my plywood to put up. And again, I'm 70 miles inland and we're in pretty good shape, but, but the guy that put it up, put it up wrong, used nails, nailed it in. A guy had a guy do it for me because I was working. He nailed it to the bricks. And so I came back home and took it down and, and bought my ply locks. And, and the next weekend I put it back up because I was making it fit, doing it right. And all the neighbors were taking theirs down when I'm putting mine back up. And there was a lot of concern in the neighborhood that there was another storm coming, even though there was nothing out there because I was putting mine up. So, <laughs> so the neighbors do watch Bill. I know they do watch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Casper Gregory just says, thanks for the great information. He says, excellent information presentation is always Greatly appreciate your time and sharing of your experiences. And I think we all echo that, Tim. Great job today. Well, thank you so much, guys. Thanks for the invite.
It's been fun. Yeah. Now you can go take a nap. <laughs> I'm going to do just that. <laughs> I will have you back on sometime. You can share some pictures and, and share some of the more knowledge that you gained from this season. And hopefully this next system out there won't bother anybody. and You won't have any pictures to share from what may be Wilfred in the days ahead. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks for joining us on Hurricane Center. Produced by the Storm Science Network and made possible by USAA, South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, and Plylux Hurricane Clips. You can find other episodes on HurricaneCenterLive.com.